0: Okay, so here we are again, we have the chance to share the Dharma for some more time together. So it's very precious time that uh, that we have. You know, and Like I was saying yesterday, the fact that we just have the interest in the Dharma, and not only the interest, but we have the external conditions so that we can uh, hear the teachings and, and discuss them and meditate on them. Um, you know, having internal and external conditions, it's, it's, they're not so easy to come by. Yeah. There's probably a lot of people who said, Oh, I want to listen to that course, and then never quite made it to sign up, you know, or they signed up and something else came up that seem more important or more interesting, Um, you know, so for all of you people who had that interest and then signed up and, you know, and made it here, (laughs) then that's, that's really fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So let's spend a couple of minutes um, letting our mind settle down, just watching the breath. And then we will set our motivation like we did yesterday Uh, We'll have a talk, and then we'll have some questions and maybe answers at the end. Okay. So lower your eyes. Let your breathing be natural. Don't force it in any way. And become aware of the flow of your breath as it it goes in, as it goes out. You can focus either at your belly and watch the rise and fall of your belly or the nostrils. And observe the sensation of the air as it passes there. So try and keep your mind at one of the places. And if you get distracted, then notice it, bring your attention back. And let's cultivate our motivation. So I think what really uh, brings something very special to a teaching is when everybody who is participating, teachers, students, and so on, Uh, share the same motivation when we're all here for the same reason, when we all want to grow in the same way. And so I think all of us here admire the bodhisattva vehicle, admire the qualities of the bodhisattvas, And even though we may not have actual bodhicitta right now, there's an aspiration to develop it and an admiration for bodhicitta and for those people who have uncontrived bodhicitta. Mm So, take a minute and renew that aspiration inside yourself. And then, in that way, we're all aligned, going in the same direction. All of us wanting to be free from samsara. All of us wanting to develop the love and compassion that bodhisattvas have, that is spread equally and constantly to all living beings. And all of us aspire for the highest awakening, to be able to benefit all those sentient beings most effectively. Let's together generate that motivation. And then slowly open your eyes and come out of your meditation. So, in case uh, some of you probably weren't here when I was teaching at the Abbey last night, so we um, covered. There, uh, starting, on, I just want to review it for a minute. Um, the section just before the one where we're going to start today. And that section was called Examining True Dukkha Via 10 Points. And so this was taken from Srivaka Bhumi by a Sangha. So I'll just go through the 10 very quickly because they're um, a very good way of really uh, putting together the major points to look at when we think about true dukkha, the first of the four truths. Okay, So the first is uh, to understand the impermanence of change, and that is course change. Yeah, when volcanoes explode, or a building falls down, um, someone dies, the change that we can uh, encounter with our senses. The second is the impermanence of perishability. And this is the fact that there's nothing can, that can stop things from changing on a momentary basis. Yeah, everything is constantly changing from one nanosecond to the next, there's no way to stop that. So things are continuously perishing. The third is the impermanence of separation. And this is remembering on a a personal level that everything we are or have, uh, or who we're related to, All of this, uh, we will separate from. Yeah, that whatever comes together is in the process of separating. Okay, and there's no way to stop that. The fourth of the 10 points is the impermanence of the dharmata, which means that uh, the nature of conditioned phenomena is that they are momentary. This is just their nature. Nothing is added or needs to be done to make them change. The fifth is the impermanence of the present. And that is um, looking at how in this very moment what exists is in the process of uh, disintegrating and vanishing. Okay. And that we can never really find the present moment or isolate the present moment uh, to make it something that we can hang on to. Okay. So that was the fifth. Then the sixth is the dukkha of pain that we talked about yesterday. The seventh is the dukkha of change that we also talked about. And the eighth is the pervasive dukkha of conditioning. So those three we covered yesterday together. Then the ninth is the aspect of unobservability. And what this means, this is getting into uh, emptiness, yeah, that there's no, we're, unable to observe any kind of self that exists separate from our mental and physical aggregates. Yeah, There's no self that's over and above kind of standing back while our body and mind is doing something or experiencing something. Yeah. So there's no separate uh, self or I like that. And then 10 is that there's no I that is in control of the body and mind. Okay. So uh, for those of us who are control freaks, who want to control everybody else, um, this is an opportunity to see that we can't even control our own body and mind. So trying to control other people is really useless. Okay, and that we should try and instead practice the Dharma, so that our own body and mind will go in a virtuous direction. Okay, so those are the the ten points from Asanga. I just went through them briefly, you know, because they they fill out, uh, you know, this what we're trying to understand to generate renunciation, to aspire for liberation, because we want to be free of of these conditions in which, you know, everything's changing, we're separated from what we like, we can't get what we uh, want, we get instead what we don't like, and so on. Okay, so now we're on page 57. So this is starting afresh, and this section is called Our Human Value. So reflecting on the above descriptions of true dukkha by applying them to our own lives and by observing the experiences of others is crucial for making this teaching come alive. Okay, so this point we should write down and look at Every time before we sit and do a meditation session, okay? Because the real key to the Dharma coming alive is when we apply it to our own life and when we see what happens to us and what happens to the people around us and what happens in the world, when we see and understand all these things in the light of what the Buddha taught. That makes the Dharma come alive because then we can validate the truth of what the Buddha said because we can see it in our own lives and in the lives of other people. If we don't do this, we may meditate on the, the points, you know, in order, but it's just intellectual and we don't really take it in as something that is happening to me right this very minute. Okay, so then our practice, it you know, after a while, it begins to feel kind of dry and intellectual. So it's really important, you know, to apply all these things uh, and understand our own experience through them. So, by doing this, a sincere aspiration to be free from samsara and attain liberation or awakening will arise in our minds. You know, because to aspire for liberation or awakening, we have to want to change. We have to want to get out of samsara. You know, and if we don't understand our own experience as samsara and instead, Just think, oh, samsara, yes, there are the three kinds of dukkha and there's six disadvantages and the eight bad conditions. And they exist somehow out there. You know, if we look at the Dharma like that, uh, then we're not going to aspire to to change anything. It's really important that we really apply everything to our lives. so then, when we're able to generate those aspirations, uh, they are the become the fuel for our dharma practice. And as our understanding of dukkha gradually increases, so will our faith in the three jewels as qualified spiritual guides. Okay. So how do we generate faith in the three jewels? We think about the teachings, and when we have a feeling of that. that You know how true the teachings are, then we know wow, you know, the Buddha really knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just going blah, blah, making something up. You know, he knew what he was talking about. So this increases our faith. So slowly we awaken to the fact that money, social status, popularity, power, praise, and appreciation while maybe useful in this life, do not bring lasting happiness and instead bring more worries and difficulties. So this we can see in our life, you know, if we don't have money, that's a problem. But if you have a lot of money, that's also a problem. Okay, if you have a lot of money, then there's people who want you to loan it to them, then there's scams, then, you know, there's all sorts of things. Uh, You know, popularity may be nice. A lot of people think having a good reputation be nice. But then, you know, we have to experience everybody's uh, unrealistic expectations for us. And that's really a drag when you can't be yourself because all these people expect you to, you know, be quite different. So these worldly things, they they seem desirable, but again, you know, they don't really bring lasting happiness. And instead they can bring a, a whole, you know, bundle of problems with them. Okay, we begin to see that chasing these things, Bring more worries and difficulties. So I I often use the example of computer hell, because this is a hell realm that I visit, not infrequently. Okay? And as soon as you have a computer, you are going to become a denizen of computer hell. Yeah? The computer is supposed to make your life easier but it always seems to have a knack for breaking either when you're doing something really important or you're in a hurry. Doesn't it? Yeah. So it's like every possession that we think will make our life easier, it brings its own set of problems. Mm -hmm. So we begin to see that chasing these things It's like riding a roller coaster or a merry-go-round. It may temporarily seem thrilling, but at the end, we're back where we started. So true, isn't it? You know, when you're a little kid and you get on a Ferris wheel, yeah, and you think, whoa, I'm going so high. And then you always go back to where you were before. And the same on the merry-go-round. Okay. So same with a roller coaster, except by that time, you're happy to get out of the car. Yeah. Um, So enduring peace still eludes us. And deep inside, we still lack a stable sense of Mm self-worth. No matter how much luxury surrounds us, how exciting our jobs are, how famous we are, or how many people love us, we still are not beyond aging, sickness, and death. True, isn't it? That doesn't matter what your social status, wealth, reputation is, you know, we all go through aging, sickness, and death. In response to this predicament, In their confusion, some people self-medicate with any number of addictions. Okay, so when we are living our life chasing after worldly happiness, but none of it really brings some lasting security or a pleasure or predictability, yeah, then we really we fall into depression, despair, and then we tend to turn to our old habitual ways of dealing with negative feelings. Okay? So how do we deal with them? Well, some people use drugs. Some people use alcohol. Some people become workaholics. They work so hard so they don't have to really look at their life. We use sex as a way to exit and get some pleasure. Digital games, my goodness, yeah, how not to think about your life, just go gaming on the internet. Watch TV, yeah, gambling, and then the all-time high, shopping, yeah. What do we do when there's a sense of malaise and boredom and things aren't right? We go shopping, yeah, and it doesn't matter what we buy, just the sense of procuring, you know, another head of lettuce. It's like this brings us (laughs) some relief from our pain, okay, but those things serve only as short-time distractions, that in the end leave us back where we started from, okay? So other people uh, think that life is meaningless and they consider ending their lives, which from a Buddhist viewpoint is really tragic because it took us so many previous lifetimes of creating virtue to create the cause For the opportunity that we have now, that to suicide is just like throwing away all the effort we put in in previous lives. And we're giving up, you know, such a remarkable situation. So ending our lives is very foolish because we all have great potential. We have the potential to become fully awakened Buddhists and the potential to experience reliable joy and fulfillment. Uh, I do prison work. And one of the the incarcerated men that I was writing to, he told me at at some point um, that he was considering suicide but then when he became a Buddhist, he realized that he would only get reborn and that suicide didn't stop, solve anything. And so he decided to stay alive. And that was a very good choice. What has happened to him since is uh, in his prison, he has started a uh, intramural uh, TV station so that the other inmates can have some educational programs. Yeah, he's a trans person, so he's advocating uh, for trans people in the prison system and outside. So he's really, um, you know, turned his life around uh, and feels that is quite meaningful now. So, I was very happy about that. When we analyze how suffering and happiness arise in our minds, we see that they come about from our actions. And our actions are motivated by our disturbing emotions and distorted views. Okay? So, verbal and physical actions, things we do you know, in when we communicate and things we do physically, yeah, these all have before them a mental action, a motivation, an intention. So the body and, and speech don't move, they don't create actions unless there's an intention. And even for the mental actions of planning something over time, the mind has to move with an intention, okay? So first we have the afflictions and the attentions, intentions that go with them. And those produce actions or karma. And then the karma ripens in terms of our experiences. Without even considering past lives, we can see that the more subdued our minds are, the more peaceful and happy we are. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. If our external environment is tumultuous, with inner mental peace, we can transform external difficulties into the path to awakening by practicing the mind training teachings. So if we have the ability to subdue the afflictions in our mind and turn our mind to a realistic and beneficial way of looking at things, then it doesn't matter who we're with or what circumstances we're in, we can find a way to be peaceful and uh, to appreciate the situation we're in. Yeah, When our mind... Uh, when our afflictions are uncontrolled, then even if we're in a wonderful environment with kind people and good food and everything we like, uh, we can be still be very miserable. Have you ever experienced that? Been in a beautiful place, you know, or on vacation somewhere, and it's really lovely, and you have good food and good friends. But you're totally miserable inside. Yeah this is when the afflictions run the show. Mm-hmm. When we're able to to subdue those afflictions, then uh, no, you know, we can experience satisfaction and contentment um, regardless of where we're at. You know there's some, we will find some way to make the situation meaningful for us but when our minds are upset agitated or obscured we are miserable even when in external even when the external environment is fantastic this clearly shows that happiness and suffering are related to our mental attitudes therefore training our minds is worthwhile So by reflecting on dukkha in this way, we become less infatuated with samsara and turn our natural aspiration for well-being to nirvana. So Gyalse Thongme Zampo's poem, The 37 Practices of Bodhisattvas, some of you may be familiar with it. It's a wonderful poem. Um, So verse nine of that poem sums this up. And he says, uh, like dew on the tip of a blade of grass, pleasures of the three worlds last only a while and then vanish. Aspire to the never-changing supreme state of liberation. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. So don't stay on the merry-go-round. Don't try and, you know, keep trying to get oil from sand. Uh, change your aspiration to one that is actually going to be worthwhile for liberation and full awakening. And then in describing his own spiritual journey before attaining awakening, here's a quote from one of the Pali Suttas. Uh, this is it's a, a little bit long passage, but it's really incredible. So, this is what the Buddha says. Before my awakening, while I was still only an unawakened bodhisattva, I too, being myself subject to birth, sought what was also subject to birth. Being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, I sought what was also subject. To aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and a defilement. Meaning that, you know, what did he turn to for refuge? Other samsaric people that were just like him, that didn't know uh, the value of human life or how to uh, transform their minds, uh, to the usual distractions. So, then he continued. Then I considered thus why, being myself subject to birth, do I seek what is also subject to birth? Why, being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, do I seek what is also subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement? Suppose I seek the unborn. Supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Suppose I seek the unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, and undefiled supreme security from bondage, nirvana. So he's relating his own experience how he was just like us grabbing on to. External things for happiness, seeking refuge in what was also under the influence of birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, and so forth. But then he decided to change his aspiration and directed toward the peace of nirvana, you know, towards the uh, having an incredible, meaningful life by attaining a full awakening of Buddhahood. So while subject to the unsatisfactory circumstances of samsara, we ignorant beings take refuge in people and things that are also subject to the vagaries of samsara. Yeah, we're subject to aging, sickness, and death. So what do we do? We become best friends with other people who are subject to aging, sickness, and death. And, you know, those people can't show us the way out of samsara. And someday we will be separated from them too. But what if we were to turn to the three jewels for refuge and seek nirvana instead? Practitioners with this aspiration are not distracted by the appeal of samsara's pleasures, riches, power, and fame, and they easily stay focused on their spiritual aims. This leads to mental peace in this life, as well as to liberation. Bodhisattvas expand on this aspiration for freedom to include all sentient beings, and they generate bodhicitta, the aspiration for full awakening. So this point becomes very vivid when you think of the people that you envy, the people who have what you wish you had, the people who have it all, Yeah, who don't have your problems. Yeah, they're rich, they're famous, they're popular, they're well-respected in samsara, you know. And we look at those people and we think, oh, they must have such wonderful lives. But then if you ever meet any of them and talk to them for more than five minutes, what you start hearing is their problems. One problem after another problem after another problem. Okay. And so, you know, in each of our countries, we have some very wealthy people. But when you read about the lives of some of of these wealthy people, i don't know i would not trade my life for theirs because they have a lot of misery yeah. to me you know if i think of the previous us president yeah i call him donny you know if you think of donny rich famous well supposedly rich we don't really know famous powerful. But what a miserable person he is. Yeah. What does he tweet about? He's always angry in his tweets. His tweets are all about gaining revenge for the people who don't agree with him. Okay, incredibly unhappy person. Yeah. So it's just a very good example that you may have all these things, but that is not what is going to make us happy. So lessening our attachment to samsaric pleasures does not mean having aversion towards our bodies, relationships, good food, praise, reputation, and other sense objects. These things in and of themselves are neither virtuous nor non-virtuous, okay? So having money or success or whatever, these things, they, they are just situations or objects. The, in and of themselves, they're not virtuous. They're not non-virtuous, okay? It is our craving for them that creates the problems. Okay, because that craving is based on exaggerating their good qualities and then wanting them and clinging to them and grasping to them and, you know, bullying other people to get what we want or lying to get what we want. Okay, so it's the craving that leads to all the problems and that leads to the creation of non-virtuous karma. So, so aspiring for liberation doesn't mean we look at the people in our lives and, you know, good health and a a clean house and things like that and say, Oh, You know, I'm beyond that. I've renounced that. No, these things are fine. They are what they are. Yeah. But we try not to get attached to them. We try not to crave them because attachment and craving create problems. Okay, so the purpose of seeing the things of samsara as unsatisfactory is to eliminate our craving for them to eliminate our clinging to them because those emotions keep us bound in samsara the more we crave and cling to the things of samsara the more we will continue to take rebirth in the conditions that we have just been learning about and seeing as dukkha as totally unsatisfactory. So to live in society, money and possessions are necessary. Yeah, being a spiritual practitioner doesn't mean we throw everything away. We can use them without attachment and share them with others in order to create merit. We human beings are social creatures and our lives depend on the kindness of others. So it's fine to appreciate the people in our lives and be compassionate toward them, but without being attached and clinging to them. Okay. So this is a new way of relating to other people and It takes a while for us to really understand what it means because we are so habituated to, you know, when we have compassion for somebody to get attached to them. Or to put it in another way, our compassion arises much uh, stronger for people we're attached to than for strangers or for people we don't like. So what we're trying to do in our practice is get rid of all this favoritism, the attachment, the aversion, the I want to push away. And instead, you know, have an equal attitude towards all people and have a, an equal attitude towards different situations in the sense that we don't get Giddy with excitement when something nice happens, and we don't get deplorably depressed when something we don't like happens. We may still have preferences, but we aren't attached to our preferences. We don't insist that things are always the way we want them. Okay, so there's flexibility in our mind. We can adapt to different situations, yeah? If the food is the kind of food we like, great. If it's not the kind of food we like, that's also okay, yeah? You eat it, it nourishes you. Tomorrow, you don't even remember what you ate today, okay? And that's certainly much better than getting all bummed out and complaining. Okay. So relinquishing attachment to our bodies doesn't mean we ignore our health and neglect to go to the doctor or the dentist. Okay. Repeat. This one's important because sometimes people get a little bit weird about this. So relinquishing attachment to our bodies. Yeah. Doesn't mean like I feel sick, but well, I'm not attached, so I won't go to the doctor. Or you have a horrendous toothache and you say, Well, I'm not attached, there's no reason to go to the dentist. That's not wisdom, that's stupidity. You know, if because we need to have a body that is relatively healthy um, because it facilitates our practice. Yeah. So we try and stay healthy. Yeah, we exercise, we eat properly. Yeah, uh, but we don't cling to good health. We don't, uh, you know, denigrate our body in any way. Okay, but we take care of it because we need it, but we don't have to be attached to it. Yeah. And when sometimes we get ill and the doctor can't fix it then we learn to live with it, okay? So, you know, we learn to adapt to situations instead of having so much craving and clinging and wanting things to be a certain way. Okay, our bodies are the physical support of our precious human lives that we use to practice the Dharma. So we must care for the body and keep it healthy. Caring for our bodies is a, in a practical way is very different from indulging in sense pleasures with attachment. Okay, so I heard, yeah, I read somewhere that Melania Trump, now that she's no longer in the White House at Mar-a-Lago Uh, They have a spa and she goes to the spa every day, spends most of the morning in the spa. Okay, that, you know, I, I can't read her mind, but outwardly that looks like there's some attachment going on. Okay, so that attachment is going to bring a lot of pain. Because someday when, you know, the spa is not working or whatever, unhappy. And also because the body gets old. And, you know, you can go to the spa all you want. It doesn't make the body younger. Okay. So we can take care of our bodies in a practical way. But that's very different than saying, you know, I have to go to a spa and I have to have, you know, 20 different kinds of vitamins to take every day and, you know, on and on and on. Okay. So with all of this talk about dukkha, we may mistakenly believe that Dharma practitioners must relinqu- relinquish all of the usual activities that bring them happiness, and instead practice extreme asceticism and self-denial. So you remember in the Buddha's biography, before he attained awakening, he went with five friends, and he practiced, uh, he did ascetic practice for six years, and they say he ate, you know, they ate one grain of rice a day, so he got so thin that when he, touched his belly button, he could feel his spine. And then the Buddha said, you know, I'm torturing my body. And, you know, pretending like attachment to this body is bad. So I'm depriving the body of everything. But you know what, this is not eliminating the afflictions in my mind. And so he decided to eat again and gain his health back so that he could go meditate. And it's at that point, that he crossed the river and he went under the Bodhi tree and meditated and attained supreme uh, awakening. And so he knew from his own experience that extreme self-denial is not the path to awakening just as extreme self-indulgence is not the path to awakening. So we may develop this uh, idea that, you know, oh, if we're really going to be holy beings, then, you know, we we will sleep on the concrete floor. You know, we will eat... uh, one bean a day, we will, you know, we give ourselves this kind of thing. Um, and, and that's not it. Okay. Uh, Lama Yeshi, whenever he saw any of his students at Copan try and do some kind of ascetic trip, he would scold them. Yeah. And I remember very clearly when a disciple who, uh, because we were living in this building that was a very old uh, building. It was made of brick. So the floor also was made of brick. And all we had was, uh, you know, some um, straw mats that we slept on. And sometimes some people were rich and they could get a a foam mat that was like this thick. So there was... uh, This one man and he, you know, he was just sleeping on the cold brick. And Lama would sometimes go around and he would look in our bedrooms and check what was going on. And when he saw just, you know, (laughs) that this guy was sleeping on the brick, he said, you know, you know, what do you think you're doing? Do you think, you know, you're on some ascetic trip to try and look holy, go get yourself a mattress. <laughs> okay. And so, you know, he wouldn't stand for that when anybody did that kind of trip. On the other hand, when people were self-adulgent, he called us out on that too. Okay. So we may fear that there is no happiness to be experienced until we reach nirvana. Samsara is just suffering. I'll never be happy until I get to nirvana. But this is not the right way to think, okay? In fact, it's important to have a happy mind while practicing the Dharma. So in samsara, although we will not have final happiness that is indestructible, that won't turn into suffering, still it's important to be able to keep a happy mind. Because if our mind is always unhappy and we're always grouchy and discontent and complaining and critical of other people, then it's very difficult to create virtue because we're spending most of our time creating non-virtue. We're having that kind of angry, discontent mind. Okay. (laughs) I remember I was living at Nalanda and uh, Geshe Jampatekchuk was our teacher there and and he would say to people you know they would come to him with their problems and he would say have a happy mind and we would all go well that's why i'm coming to you because i don't have a happy mind <laughs> tell me how to have a happy mind and in his teachings that's what he was teaching us he was teaching us how to have a happy mind if we practice those teachings we would have had at least some level of contentment, yeah. But we thought a happy mind came from, you know, I don't know, outer space or some some other kind of something, you know that <laughs> he, he needed to give us some other teaching to teach us how to be happy when that's what he was doing from the get-go. Okay, so as we go deeper into practice, we realize that there are many types and levels of happiness and pleasure. Having food, shelter, clothing, medicine, and friends bring us some well-being. Enough that we can practice the Dharma without being in dire suffering, which would make practicing difficult if we, you know, had no food, clothing, shelter, or medicine. So we have those things. They may not be the perfect things we want, but they keep us alive, and that is certainly good enough. As we practice more, we discover the internal peace arising from living ethically and the pleasant, relaxed feelings that come from improving our concentration. So if we live ethically, automatically that eliminates so much confusion from our mind and so much pain from our mind. Okay? When we live ethically, then we don't, ha- we don't criticize ourselves so much. Yeah? Because we, d- we did what was suitable and proper and kind for the situation. When we don't act ethically, and we're trying to get the best thing for ourselves, or we're greedy, or we're disparaging, then we don't feel good inside, okay? And at the end of the day, we have to live with ourselves. And if we don't feel good about our own actions, even other people tell us we're wonderful, that doesn't make our mind happy, Whereas if we live according to our own ethics, our own standards, our own values, then we're peaceful inside. We feel good about ourselves. Okay? So ethical conduct really is a a big way uh, to start feeling better about ourselves and to start uh, having a happy life. Okay? When we develop concentration in our meditation, also the mind becomes calmer. So that creates a sense of happiness in this life as well. As we lessen our attachment and open our hearts to others, the joy derived from connecting with others on a heart level and acting with kindness towards them brings us a sense of fulfillment, that is greatly superior to any sense pleasure that money and possessions can afford. Now, when you really open your heart to another living being, yeah, doesn't that bring a feeling in your own heart that is above and beyond what any kind of possessions or object could bring you? You know, I think that you know. Selena says that we're we're social beings, and I think we derive a lot of meaning in our lives from um, connecting with others. And you know, when we're able to do even a small thing that benefits somebody else, we feel good. Uh-huh. His Holiness, I I remember one time at a public talk, he was talking about compassion. And he said that uh, we usually think when uh, somebody's compassionate, that the person who receives the compassion is the fortunate one who's happy. And the person who gives compassion is self-sacrificing and maybe a little bit miserable, okay? But the person who's on the receiving end of compassion is happy. And the Dalai Lama said, no, that's not the way it is, you know? He said, when I'm compassionate, I don't know if the other person will accept my compassion If they will feel better or not, I have no control over their response. But when I act out of compassion, I feel happy. When I'm able to give something to someone or lighten somebody's load even a little bit, I I have a sense of fulfillment in my heart. So he said, when I'm compassionate, I'm the person who benefits the most not the person who's the object of my compassion. And if you think about this and watch your own experience, it's really true. Although most people in the world have intimate emotional and sexual relationships, some people choose not to have them. This is a valid lifestyle choice, whether people are Buddhist or not, whether they are monastics or lay practitioners, they are not avoiding intimacy. They prefer to use their life energy doing other things that are more important to them. In short, giving up our addiction to pleasure derived from external objects and people opens the door to experience other types of happiness there so many types of happiness in the world mm-hmm. some people wonder if it's possible to become attached to dharma and to crave liberation okay the answer is no okay attachment is based on projecting or exaggerating qualities and then clinging to an object In general, it is not possible to exaggerate the excellent qualities of the three jewels of the Buddha Dharma Sangha, or to exaggerate the the excellent qualities of liberation or full awakening. Furthermore, appreciation of the Dharma's excellent qualities and the aspiration to attain liberation are very different from being attached to them with obsessive longing or possessiveness. So don't confuse virtuous aspiration with clinging attachment. They're very different. And don't confuse having, making a wise choice with being attached to something. Again, they're they're quite different. But one of the things that people often get into, a misunderstanding that people have, is any kind of attraction towards anything means attachment, and that's bad. And that's not what the Buddha is saying. Okay? attachment exaggerates the good qualities. Wisdom, aspiration, virtuous aspiration doesn't exaggerate good qualities. It knows the good qualities and directs our mind in, in the way in towards what our mind should be directed towards. If someone perchance builds an ego identity Thinking, I am a Buddhist and my religion is best. That person has not understood Buddhism very well. His attitude is not one of attachment to Buddhism, rather, his mind is afflicted with self grasping and arrogance. Okay, so as Buddhists, we respect all religions. And we see that one religion or one philosophy is not the best for everybody. Why? Because people have different mentalities, different interests, different ways of thinking. Okay. Uh, So what did they say? Uh, Different strokes for different folks. Okay. So Um, We accept that people have differences. And as long as whatever they're practicing helps them to be more ethical and to be kinder, then we rejoice and we encourage them. Okay, so that's the end of chapter two. Um, Before going on, how about if we stop here and we have some Q&A? Okay, you may have some questions and comments building up. And so I have one question here from yesterday. Okay, so sometimes obstacles come all at once, and they interfere with our dharma practice. So how do we minimize them and and reduce the obstacles uh, getting in the way of our practicing the dharma? Okay. There's a genre of teachings uh, called mind-training teachings. And one uh, important point in the mind-training teachings is how to take adversity into the path. Because as beings who live in samsara, we are always going to face adversity. We're never going to have a perfect situation. Why? Because the nature of samsara is dukkha, unsatisfactory. So if we think we have to wait for the perfect external situation, and we have to be in the perfect health, and all of our relationships have to be perfect, before we practice the dharma, then we will never practice the dharma because we will never have perfect situations. So in practicing mind training, our obstacles are our practice. Our obstacles are what make us grow strong in the Dharma. Okay? So if we learn how to practice properly, if we learn the thought training techniques, and if we remember them, and if we put them into ta- into practice again and again and again, then our own mind transforms obstacles and they actually become things that can benefit us on the practice. Because very often, When we face a hindrance, we are called upon to grow. We are called upon to change. And so this hindrance, this obstacle, is the situation that is pushing us to really practice the Dharma and change our mind instead of just going back to our usual ways of, you know distracting ourselves when we have difficulties. Okay. So uh, I'll give you a few examples. I was um, once asked to uh, there was a, a wellness group at a, a hospital, some place where I was teaching. And they asked me to come and, and, you know, talk to the people in the wellness group. And most of the people there uh, were, had cancer or were recuperating from cancer or receiving treatment for cancer. And one woman said to me, yeah, she said, I have learned to appreciate that I got cancer. Because it has made me change in a a way that I never would have changed before. And I really appreciate my life so much more now. And I appreciate the people in my life so much more now. And I never would have had this new attitude of appreciation if I had not gotten cancer. That person, that woman was practicing thought training. Okay. She took an obstacle and used it so that she developed some really good qualities out of it. And so that her life, you know, became more meaningful than it was before. Yeah. So when we face obstacles we usually go oh no how do i get rid of this but yeah when we are well habituated with the mind training practice then when obstacles come we we say good and we start to think okay what is this obstacle challenging me To develop, because I have inner resources that I can develop to to counteract this obstacle. Yeah, every obstacle doesn't need to destroy me. And so we go back and we really think about the teachings we've heard, and we start applying those teachings to our lives. And then the obstacle becomes less painful and we really begin to grow in a way that we otherwise have not had, would not have grown. Personally speaking, um, one experience I had comes very strongly in my mind in this regard, uh, where somebody betrayed my trust was somebody I was quite close to. They completely betrayed my trust. And I was like, and and they did it not kind of gradually, but like, boom. And so I was like, uh, what is going on here? I thought this person was a good friend. And now look what they're saying and look what they're doing. And, you know, I was really... Um, yeah, I was really kind of crushed and confused by it. And as it happened, uh, some months after that incident, I was able to go into retreat. And in my retreat, I really tried to practice the mind training teachings and to really look at, you know, what happened in that relationship with that person. And I saw that I, had very unrealistic expectations, yeah? I thought that that person was different than they were. So I really spent some time thinking, okay, what went wrong? And and like I said, I realized I had very unrealistic expectations of that person, yeah? I thought this and this and this and this, and I never looked at what was actually happening with them. And I never asked them if they agreed to my expectations of them. And so, you know, as I really understood this much better, I began to see that in many situations, I had unrealistic expectations of people. And so it really made me stop and and slow down and realize I have to let people be who they are, and let them, you know, do what they need to be, do what they need to do, instead of my always, you know, expecting them and to be this and that, and trying to push them into being what I wanted them to be. And, uh, and so I really came to appreciate What happened with that person? It was incredibly painful, but it really made me grow. And what's interesting, you know, as a colophon to to that situation, is a year or two afterwards, that person apologized to me. But by that time, I didn't need an apology. Yeah, because my mind had had really changed. So he apologized to me, and I turned around and apologized to him for having unrealistic expectations. Yeah. So, uh, so there is possible to use our obstacles, you know, in terms of our practice. So very often. Uh, What You know, some ways to do that. Let's say you're sick, you don't feel well. Do the taking and giving meditation, the Tonglen meditation, where you imagine taking on the pain and suffering of others and giving them your happiness and your well-being. Um, Think, you know, think of um, doing purification. Yeah, because why do we have this obstacle? Because of some negative karma we created. Yeah, so do purification. When we purify, we can't stop karma that has already ripened. Yeah, so the 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 karma that ripened is the obstacle. You're you're not purifying because it already matured. But whatever karma you have in the future to experience something similar. That, that karma, you are, are purifying. Okay. Another thing that I find works very, very well is um, to think, why do I have this obstacle? Uh, because of some negative karma that I myself created. Yeah. Because suffering is the result of uh, destructive actions. So sometime either in this life or in a previous life, I created some non-virtuous action. It is now ripening in terms of, you know, this obstacle that I face. And so I'm going to learn from it. And there's a very uh, good text called The Wheel of Sharp Weapons uh, and a commentary on it called Good Karma. Um, that explain all sorts of karmic relationships. Like when you do this, this is the kind of result that you're gonna experience. Or when this happens to you, it's because you created this kind of cause by doing this action. Okay. So it's a very informative text to get us thinking when we have obstacles about the kind of ah. Of, uh, Action we did in the past that created the karma that's ripening as this obstacle. And then we can think okay, if I don't make like this obstacle, then I have to be very careful in the future not to do this same destructive action. Yeah, because if I continue to create, you know, the same non virtue, I'm going to continue to get the same miserable result. And so, in that way, we really learn from our experiences. Yeah. and you know when you when you think like that, then it, it really uh transforms how you interact with what happens in your life. Mm-hmm. Okay one of my Dharma friends when she was in retreat in Nepal, she got a very big um boil on her cheek. And boils are very painful. When she was walking around the monastery one day on a break in her meditation, uh, she bumped into our teacher, you know, and he said, Oh, how are you? And she said, oh, this is miserable. You know, my boil hurts so much. And he said, Good, fantastic and she was like huh and then, you know he said you're purifying all that karma and so once you purify that karma it's no longer there obscuring your mind it's not going to it can't ripen and create another obstacle cuz you're experiencing the result of it now and finishing that okay So it really made her kind of look at the situation in a very different way. So uh, the previous chapter was about the first truth, true dukkha. The current chapter, chapter three, is called the true origins of dukkha. So this is what causes all of our unsatisfactory experiences. So we live amidst true dukkha day in and day out. It is our close companion, never letting us be peaceful in our own hearts or with others. Since we do not like dukkha and want to be free from it, we must seek out its causes, examine if those causes can be eliminated, And if so, learn what the path is to eliminate them. So the Buddha identified afflictions and karma as the true origins of Dukkha. So karma means actions, volitional actions, and uh, the karma arises from afflictions. And the chief affliction is ignorance. Okay, is there's, there's many kinds of ignorance. This is a special kind of ignorance. Okay, um, and it's the ignorance that misapprehends how things actually exist. So, whereas things arise dependent on causes and conditions and parts and so on, we think that everything has its own independent inherent essence. As a result of seeing ourselves in that way, we think that there's a real solid me. And then we make a big deal out of me and I have to have happiness. And so we get attached to things. And anything that interferes with our happiness, I don't like. So we get angry and we want to destroy it or run away from it. Okay, But all these kinds of afflictions are rooted in the the ignorance that apprehends things as existing in the opposite way than they really exist, So the Buddha identified afflictions and karma as the true origins of dukkha. Karma arises from afflictions, the chief of which is ignorance. In this chapter, we will examine the defilements that are the origins of dukkha. These mental factors keep us bound in cyclic existence and prevent our attainment of nirvana and awakening. So these are the real troublemakers. Yeah, We think other people are the source of our happiness. Other people are uh, are the, and we think that other people are also the source of our unhappiness. Actually, it's our mental state that is the source of our unhappiness. Or when we transform it, it's our mental state that's the source of our happiness. Okay. So it is uh, these mental factors keep us bound in cyclic existence and prevent our attainment of nirvana and awakening. Buddhist psychology is profound and reveals parts of our minds that we may have been oblivious to. Virtuous Virtuous and variable mental factors were described in chapter three of the previous volume that that was called the foundation of Buddhist practice. So the following afflictive mental factors are explained in the context of factors that produce dukkha and interfere with attaining liberation and full awakening. So it's important to Uh, Approach the topic of afflictions with the correct attitude. Avoid using the various lists of of defilements to criticize yourself. Thinking, oh, I have so much anger. I am so jealous. What a bad person I am. You know, because we're going to go through lists of different afflictive mental states And we will see that we have them, all of them. But that doesn't mean we're bad people. So don't get into, oh, I'm so bad. Oh, look, I'm like this and this. Okay. Because what we're doing is we're identifying what the causes of our dukkha is so that we can overcome those causes and attain a state of happiness. Okay, we're not studying these so that we can increase our self hatred and our low self esteem. The Buddha does not need to teach us that. Okay, we do that all by ourselves with our confused mind. So the Buddha is teaching us these things so that we can identify them and then work to overcome them. Remember that gaining knowledge about mental defilements gives us the power to free ourselves from them and arrive at a state of true peace. Basically, you know, if we want to clean our room, we have to see the dirt. You know, you can't clean your room if you can't see the dirt. So in the same way, if we want to clean our mind and purify our mind, we have to be able to identify the, the dirt in it, the afflictive mental states. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, I mean, if you try and, and clean your, your room, but you don't know where the dirt is, you can work for a long time, but you're not going to have a clean room. Okay. So we um, we have the potential to free ourselves from these defilements. So chapters twelve to fourteen in this particular volume will discuss the possibility to attain liberation and our Buddha nature that makes that possible. But right now we have to look at what needs to be eradicated. Describing afflictions is similar to identifying the thieves in our house, okay? Especially when thieves have been masquerading as our friends while all the time stealing our happiness. Okay, so there's somebody in your house that looks so nice. They stick up for you. They praise you. They tell you how wonderful you are. And then you find out that they've basically been siphoning off your money and stealing your stuff and taking advantage of you. Okay. So the afflictions are like that because sometimes when a, a, an affliction is very strong in our mind, we feel powerful or we feel happy. And we think that the affliction is what is giving us power and happiness. And it's not, okay? It's actually the thief that's destroying our happiness. When we know their characteristics of these thieves, of the defilements, we can catch them, evict them, and lock the door behind them so they can never return. But unlike living thieves that can regroup later, once evicted, afflictions vanish completely. Okay, so once we have the wisdom that understands how things actually exist and use that wisdom to overcome our ignorance, then all of the defilements that depend on ignorance to exist they you know fade away it's like when you cut the root of a tree all the branches die so it's the same kind of thing yeah so once, once we've eradicated the defilements from our mind uh, you know they can't go regroup other elsewhere and then come back and afflict us yeah. If we haven't eliminated them completely because we haven't realized the nature of reality, then we may subdue them for a while, but they'll come back again. But at least we've learned to subdue them for a while. And slowly we increase that and get better and better at doing that. So, like all other phenomena, Mental defilements are empty of inherent existence. They are transient, like bubbles that quickly burst. They have no essence, like the trunk of a plantain tree. Rather than think of anger or any other affliction as a solid emotion that is always lurking under the surface of your mind, ready to explode. Spewing its vitriol, recognize that it all these afflictions, including anger, exist by being merely designated. In dependence on some moments of mind that share some common characteristics, we designate anger. That's all anger is. So this is important because. In the West, when we talk about psychology, we often talk about suppressed emotions, as if you know the you know here's the surface of our mind. We're living our life, but underneath, you know, there's repressed anger, repressed resentment, repressed belligerence, because of what happened in our childhood. And all these things are lurking beneath the surface and at any time they're going to explode and our repressed anger is going to go blah and dump its lava all over the whole world. Okay, so we have sometimes the image of our afflictions as something solid like that, you know. That are unpredictable and going to explode. But it's not like that. When we think of something like anger, okay, can we identify one thing that is anger? Okay, can you identify one moment in your whole lifetime? Only one moment that is real anger. There's no real anger. There's a lot of moments of mine that have come in our lifetime that share the common characteristic of being based on exaggerating the negative quality of someone or something. So There's different, these different mental states that have a common characteristic. Yeah. And that characteristic is they've made a mountain out of a molehill, but think there's a real mountain there. And thus, they want to destroy the mountain or they want to run away from it. Okay. Okay. So, on top of all those, or not on top of, independence on all those mental states that share that common characteristic, we give the name anger. That's all anger is. Okay? There's no real inherently existent anger there. It's just something, it's a term that we have designated on several mental states in our lifetime that have that common characteristic. When we see anger in that way, does it give you a whole different feeling about your anger? For me, it gives me a feeling like, oh, it's, it's something, it's kind of light. Whereas when I think, oh, I am angry and there is repressed anger under the surface, then I feel like, you know, if, if that's what I think anger is, then, you know, something gets quite uh, uh, tense. But when I think anger, it's basically something that exists by giving a name to certain mental states that have a common characteristic. Okay. So try to see your anger as something like that. Okay. Independence on some moments of mind that share some common characteristics, we designate anger. That's all anger is. It's not a monster that is an inherent part of us. It is not who we are. We need to view our afflictions from two perspectives. On the one hand, they are the source of our misery. On the other hand, they lacked essence and can be completely eradicated from our mind stream. They are not an inherent part of us. They are not hardwired into some part of our brain. There are many ways of classifying mental defilements. And so in this chapter, we will begin with the six root afflictions, the most prominent group in the Sanskrit tradition. So this is a good place for us to stop because the next section is quite long. So this is just introducing uh, the notion of afflictions. But I think, you know, this last point that we hit, Seeing your afflictions as something that has been merely designated on a group of similar moments of consciousness, you know, think about that. Don't think of your anger as like, oh, I've always been angry. And, you know, I had this horrible childhood and it's still so painful that I've got to be angry and that anger is in my heart and there's no way I can get rid of it. If you say that to yourself, if you describe your pain and your anger like that to yourself, you're going to be really miserable. And it's also an unrealistic view of what pain and anger are. Try and see it as something different. And uh, when you do, then you see that there's many alternatives, many options in your life. One last little bit to think about nirvana. is just this will give you a feeling for what nirvana is. It's not the real nirvana, but it gives you a feeling. For a minute, imagine what it would be like not to get angry, that there was no seed of anger in your mind so that no matter what people said to you, you didn't get irritated and upset. No matter what people did to you or how they treated you, you would not get enraged What would it be like just not to have anger? Yeah, just try imagining that. It feels really nice, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like, whoa, wouldn't that be a release? Not to have anger. Okay. So then, what is nirvana? It's not only anger being for, forever removed from our mind like that, but also craving, jealousy, belligerence, spite, you know, all these kinds of afflictive mental states. They are, they've just been cut off from the root. And imagine how peaceful you would feel if that is the case. That gives us some little taste of what nirvana might be like. So with that, let's dedicate the merit.